Father, thank you that we can put ourselves under the authority of your word now, and we thank you for the whole book of Genesis, but especially this last chapter. We thank you for those few verses near the end that are just gold for us, and we look forward to that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to hear your word, understand your word, know how to apply your word. pray that you'd be using your word to shape us now. So we uh, give this time to you. We ask you to, to make us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Happy Father's Day to you, by the way. I know I'm looking forward to this afternoon. Uh, it's going to be beautiful weather, I hope, and uh, hope to go ride some four-wheelers out of the Wolbers' house. So look, looking forward to that. It uh, was a lot of fun last Father's Day, so looking forward to it this day. All right. Think about the worst wound that you have. I don't, I don't mean a physical wound. I mean like a heart wound. The thing that has hurt you the most in life, whether it's somebody actually doing something to you or just the way that life worked out, this event, this circumstance, this, this thing, it, it wounded you more than anything else. It's a scar, and it's a deep one. And maybe, maybe it's so deep that you don't even want anybody else to know about it. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and share the deepest wound in your life. But it's, it's something that, whether you want to or not, it seems it's like it has power over you. It def- somehow defines you. And even if you're a child of God and you know that, that whatever has been done to you is, is in the past and, and Christ can give you uh, freedom and deliverance from it and healing, yet somehow it just like it, it holds onto you. And for some of you, that, may, that wound, that may actually come from your father. And so today is this weird mix of, yeah, I want to celebrate Father's Day, and yet that thing that is most broken in me actually comes from my father. Or maybe you're a father, and you fear that you have been the initiator of that deep wound in your children. And there's this guilt and this shame, and it feels like you're you're captive to your fat past, and you want to you be a father that moves ahead and, and loves and leads your family well, and yet you feel like, man, there's just no hope. As we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've seen over and over again fathers called by God, commissioned to love and lead their families, fail miserably. And yet God has been working through all of those failures Failures that are far worse than most of us, maybe all of us in this room, have failed in. God has been working a sovereign and good plan through all of it. And today we get to look at the the grand finale of it, the culmination of it, where we see God take uh, sin and failure and evil and pain and darkness and, and pull back the veil and let us see a little bit of how God was working in and through all of that. That's what we get to see today in Genesis 50. Last week, we witnessed the death of Jacob, whom God renamed as Israel. Today, we'll see the death of his son, Joseph, too. Genesis ends with death. It started with life, though. How did we start the first book of the Bible with life and end the first book of the Bible with death? Where did death come from anyway? Well, Genesis explained that for us in the third chapter where the first humans, the first man and first woman, rebelled against the life-giving God. And they plunged us into sin and death for the rest of human history. 
the fact that Jacob died in our text last week, and Joseph died in the text this week, is a direct result of those first ancestors rebelling against the author of life. They were made in God's image. They were given a commission to represent God and to rule over the earth, and yet they decided they would rather be God than follow God. Last week, we looked through the tent flap, tent flap as Jacob and Israel blessed his 12 sons. And some of what he said to those 12 sons was really beautiful and encouraging, and some of it was really sad, and discouraging, and hard to hear. But all of it was inspired by God, because Jacob was speaking not just as a dad who has a few minutes to give his last words, but speaking as a prophet of God to tell his sons, the future tribes of Israel, what was going to happen, what would come of them. He's not simply saying a hope, a wish. He's not even describing what he hopes will happen. He was prescribing what would happen in the lives of these 12 boys and the tribes that would come from him. And then we saw that his final wish, after he blessed his sons, his final wish was uh, to be buried in the land of Canaan, which we would now call Israel. That his boys would take his body and bury it in the family burial cave that his granddad, granddad Jacob bought, or granddad uh, Abraham bought, and that uh, some of his, his family had already been there, been buried there. He said, boys, the last thing I ask of you is that you take my body back to Canaan and you bury me in the cave. We looked at how that was a statement of faith, that it was a, a belief that Jacob had that God was going to keep his promises, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, and also to Joseph, that God would take this family and he would multiply it, we turn it into a great nation, he would give them the land of Canaan as an eternal inheritance that they would possess that land. And so Jacob, even though he knows he's not going to be alive when it happens, believes that someday his family is going to possess the land that we call Israel, and he wants his remains buried there as a statement of faith, belief in God's promise for that. Today, we get to see how that burial takes place, and then the story changes to talk about the death of Joseph. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 1 through 26. It's on page 43 if you're looking in a Black Pew Bible. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So because Joseph is such a big shot in Egypt, his dad gets the royal treatment. You think about the famous mummies that have been discovered in Egypt. So Jacob's getting that treatment. For 40 days, he, whatever the embalming process is that gets done to him. And then for another 30 days after that, the nation of Egypt continues to officially mourn the death of this foreigner. Now this is not because Jacob was a great man in their eyes but because Joseph was such a great man. Joseph is, is honored in the land of Egypt because God used him to save the lives of all of Egypt and the surrounding countries 
He's been a good, wise servant leader. Everybody in Egypt respects and loves Joseph now. And they are thankful. They know that they owe him a great debt. And so when Joseph's dad dies, blessing is poured out, honor is poured out on Jacob. So kids, let this be, let this be an encouragement to you. The way that you live your life can be a source of great blessing to your parents. That others looking at your life may bless your parents because of the way that you lived. Verse 4, when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, of course he has, he saved the whole nation, right? Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I'll return. So even though Joseph is second in command and has saved the nation, he still serves at the pleasure and under the authority of Pharaoh. And so he's got to ask Pharaoh for some days off in order to go bury his father. Pharaoh is eager to agree and actually to assist, and he gives a whole bunch of people and chariots and horses and supplies and all kinds of things in order to make this into a giant royal procession. Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Now, I imagine this royal funeral procession traveling a couple hundred miles across the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula into the land of Canaan, just you know, stretching out as far as can be, slowly going through the hot desert, past towns, villages, camps, all that stuff. And I have to wonder, what did the people think when they saw this giant funeral procession going by with obviously great amounts of wealth and power and authority attached to it. Did they wonder who this was? Did, they, did the rumor mill get started and they say, oh, that's, that's Jacob. We saw when he and his family were starving, walking the other direction. And now Jacob's body is being carried back in honor with a royal procession. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, you may be putting some things together here. This is the exodus of Israel, the man, back to the land of Israel. And 400 years later, Israel, the nation, would have its own exodus from Egypt to the land of Israel. Now, there's an interesting clue in here. And uh, we're going to see it in the next verse that shows us that as Moses is writing this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he really is meaning to give a foreshadowing of that exodus 400 years later. So verse 10, when they came to the, th- the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. So they've already done 70 days in Egypt, then they walk for days and days and days, they get to this place the threshing floor of Atad, and there's seven more days of grievous and official mourning. This is, this is different than how we tend to do mourning in funerals today. 
When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. I'm always thinking in terms of maps and locations, and so when I see this place described as beyond the Jordan, I think, really? It's beyond the Jordan? What does that mean? So here's, here's our first map. Goshen is that land in Egypt where the Israelites were settled. It was the best land. They've been living there for a while. They're going back to Mamre in Canaan or Israel, which is where the cave is. If we go to the next map, we'll add in the blue line is the short Jordan River. It flows from the heights of Mount Hermon, just a short ways down to the Dead Sea where it ends. And then you can see the east side of that is the area that the Bible refers to as beyond the Jordan. And we think, why in the world are they beyond the Jordan if they're going from Goshen to Mamre? So if we were to kind of draw a line of what they did coming across the top of the Sinai around the other side of the Dead Sea up into what today would be called the country of Jordan, around to the top and over to Mamre. Why do that? Well, it's a foreshadowing of the Exodus 400 years in the future. So this next line is what I would consider the most likely route for the Exodus. Now, there were lots of extra twists and turns and loops and things because they were at it for 40 years, right? But they leave Egypt. They travel down into the Sinai Peninsula. And without going into all kinds of detail, Mount Sinai is like right in the middle of the bottom there. And uh, honestly, I don't think there's any chance that it's really Mount Sinai. So the real Mount Sinai is over in Arabia. And so they come down, they cross that, that little arm of the Red Sea sticking up there. And then they go to the real Mount Sinai and they, they're wandering around for 40 years. Finally, they come up through the beyond the Jordan area and they cross across the north side of the Dead Sea through Jericho in order to take the land. That's the only reason I can think of that God would have this family take the long way around, go to a threshing floor, which is just like a big stone flat area on top of a hill, mourn for seven days, and then come back west into the land. I think it has to be a picture of what is going to happen 400 years later when not the man Israel, but the nation Israel is led out of slavery by Moses. Verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. That was way back in the first half of Genesis, like four years ago or something. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, like in so many families, when there's a the strong presence, especially of like a, a, a grandfather or a grandmother who kind of holds the family together. There are certain divisions and uh, heartaches and fights and things that are existent in the family, but they're squashed. They're held down out of respect or maybe out of fear for that patriarch or matriarch that's kind of holding the family together. But then that glue person dies and chaos breaks out in the family because he or she's not there to hold it together anymore. That kind of situation is what is going to happen now. Jacob's dead. He's been holding the boys together. 
They've done the official mourning thing. Now they're on their way back, and fear starts to rise up in the brothers of Joseph. Joseph has extended them forgiveness. Remember, they sold him as a slave when he was 17 years old. He said, I've forgiven you. He has graciously cared for them. He's been generous to them and to their, their wives and their kids. He has provided for them. And yet, inside them, they're thinking, this is all an act. When dad's dead, the hammer's coming down on us. We see that in this next verse. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That's a short summary of what I bet was a multiple-day conversation as they're walking back to Egypt. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Joseph has every right. And when we get back to Egypt, he has uh, the authority and the means and the motivation to destroy us. What are we going to do? Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Now, they present this to Joseph as though it's Jacob's wish. We're not told anywhere before in the story that Jacob actually said this to these guys. And honestly, I think they're just making this up. I think this is a lie. We don't know, but that would fit the character. It would fit the family history. So much deception, so much lying. And it just sounds fishy, doesn't it? Sounds contrived. Now Joseph, who had already forgiven them, who had already extended them grace and mercy, generously provided for them, he's going to respond in a gracious, beautiful way. I I would not probably have responded that way. I probably would have responded with, with anger and frustration. Like, I, I have forgiven you. I have loved you. I have cared for you. How can it be that you don't trust me? Why would you think that, that I would turn on you now and destroy you when I could have destroyed you in the past? What's wrong with you losers? Like that's, that's how I would have responded. But not the way Joseph responds. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His heart breaks for the brokenness that is still in the family and the brokenness that is still in his brothers. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And that last sentence is the beginning of this short little speech that he gives that is the most important speech especially in the last quarter of the book of Genesis, maybe the last half of the book of Genesis, and we might even be able to say that his speech here is kind of the main idea of everything in the book of Genesis after the fall. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Am I the judge over you? Am I to bring justice and punishment against you? Am I to take revenge on you? The answer is no, I'm not. I'm not in the place of God, and I'm not bringing judgment on you. I'm not bringing revenge on you. Joseph knows his place. He knows he is not God. He is a servant of the one true God. He will humbly and strongly 
represent God, but he will not rise up, pretend to be God. Every one of us in this room wants to be God. Deep in our hearts, that's what we want. We want to be God. And it goes all the way back to that first sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, where the serpent, Satan, tempts them and says, if you just eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will what? You'll be like God. Man, that sounds like a good deal. Eat the fruit, I get to be like God. And we've been doing that for thousands of years since then. And yet Joseph stands here shining again as a hero, and he says, am I in the place of God? No. He could have squashed him. He could have just killed him even before he got back to Egypt. He's got you know, the elders of the house of, of Egypt there in order to, to back him up. He's got chariots and probably soldiers and, and all kinds. Of, he could just take him out, but he doesn't. When we act in revenge, when we get back at someone, when we gossip about them, when we speak badly about them, when we lie about them, when we lie to them, when we avoid them, when we give them the silent treatment, all of these things, when we do that, we are essentially saying, I am God in this situation. I am the righteous judge. You are the evil transgressor, and I bring punishment and judgment on you. Joseph refuses to do that. He refuses to sit in that seat of judgment and justice. He consciously rejects that age-old temptation to believe that he is God. What else does he say? Here's the main point of the whole story. As for you, he says to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now I marvel at a couple things in here. First, I marvel at the gentle and the gracious way that Joseph speaks to these guys who really deserve just to be smacked at this point, right? And yet, we're told he spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. He extends grace and mercy, not just in his words, not just in his decisions, but in how he speaks, even in the tone of voice. But the main point is found there in verse 20. You meant evil against me. He says he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't say, you didn't know what you were really doing. He says, your intention, your hearts, your motivation was evil against me. You meant evil against me. You were, and he would even say, you are evil. You plotted evil. You planned evil. You you pulled off the evil against me. That's what you did. He's not going to gloss over it. He doesn't stop there. He says, even though you acted in evil and your heart's intention were evil, God was good to me. He says, but God meant it for good. You meant it. Your intention was evil. God's intention, his plan, was good. God is working not just, this is important, not just in spite of the evil of these brothers, but working through 
the evil of these brothers. Their deception, their jealousy, their envy, their uh, their plan to murder him, which then turns into a plan to sell him as a slave, which they actually do. God is not saying, oh man, they just keep messing up my plan. Now I've got to go with plan B. No, God is working through that. He's using the evil for Joseph's good. And not only that, for the good of many others. Now, I had a short email exchange with Rick this week where he, he did a great job of pointing out. He says, you know, this, this story is not just about how God works through and on behalf of Joseph for Joseph's good, but Joseph himself said in this paragraph that God did this good in order to save the lives of many. So as, as we try to apply this today, as we try to bring this into our world, uh, take the, the wisdom that Rick shared with me this week and, and stick it into your life. If, if you are suffering and God is bringing good through that suffering, it may not even be primarily your good that he's working for. Maybe other people's good. Now, yes, he is working for your good, and we'll see that clearly, but there's perhaps millions of people alive at the moment that this is written that their lives were saved. God worked good for them through the evil of Joseph's brothers. Because the plan was to have Joseph in the right place at the right time with the right skills and the right character, and all of that stuff necessitated the evil. It's what shaped him. If you're thinking, wait a minute, if God's, if God's a sovereign God, are you saying evil was God's idea? Is God responsible for that evil? That is not what the text is saying. The text is very clearly saying, though, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He knew about it. It didn't take him by surprise, and he used it for good. Now, God could have prevented the evil. Joseph's a pretty great guy. We see that in the story. He might be God's favorite guy on earth at the time. And God could have said, I'm going to spare my favorite guy from the, the beating, from the stealing of the robe, from the selling as a slave, from the wrongful imprisonment and accusations in Egypt. I, I'm going to spare my favorite guy from all of that. But he didn't. God could have prevented the evil that was, was planned and perpetrated against Joseph, and yet he did not stop it. And that is true for your evil too. Just to sink in. That thing, that person, that circumstance that has hurt you more than anything else, God could have stopped it. The one who was coming against you in evil, God could have just dropped him dead that moment. God didn't do it. And if you've wrestled with this and you've thought, man, I don't know that I can trust this God. He claims to be a good God. He claims to be an omnipotent, all-powerful God, and yet he allowed this thing to happen to me. This scar inside of me is a result of him saying, I'm going to let this evil happen to my beloved child. That doesn't sound good. 
And so maybe, maybe you've cried tears and you've poured yourself out in prayer. Maybe you've screamed at the sky, God, where were you? Why would you let this happen to me? How can you possibly claim to be a good, powerful, sovereign, loving God if you would ignore that and not stop it? Yet we see in the story of Joseph that God very much allowed this evil to come against Joseph. And he used it for good. He said, well, I'm not Joseph. J- Joseph is an exceptional guy. God used Joseph to do amazing things. Of course he's going to work through the evil and bring about good in Joseph's life. But I am not Joseph. I'm just a regular person. I'm not going to save the lives of millions. I'm not going to be the second in charge of the nation of Egypt. I'm just a regular person. So I'm not really so sure that God is really working for my good in these evil things. So let's turn to the New Testament. Romans 8, chapter 28. I'm sorry, verse 28. Romans 8, 28 to 30. It's on page 94 in a black, 944 in a black pew Bible. Paul says this, and we know, not we hope, we guess, we hypothesize, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So does this apply to everyone? No. It says it right in there. Right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now that, that's, that's a conditional statement. If this, then this. We don't like conditional statements, especially from God. We, we would rather that it said God is working for the good of everyone in all circumstances, and that is not what it says here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we should ask, what does it mean to be somebody who loves God? Because if you want to be in that side of the equation, you should know what is required of you there. If we turn to John chapter 14, 15, chapter 14, verse 15, we read this. The words out of Jesus' own mouth, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, man. We're going to feel this tension all through the study on the book of John. First John. Where he says over and over again, beloved, 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 and if you really are, then you'll walk in obedience. So if we take Romans 8, 28, and we take John 14, 15, and we put them together, the, the conclusion we have to come to based on the scripture is that those who love God are those who are obeying him, and they are the ones that God is working all things together for their good. Again, we wish that was more inclusive. 
but it is not. You might say, wait a minute, this sounds like legalism to me, right? This doesn't sound like the gospel of grace that we normally talk about. You mean that in order for me to be within that equation that all things are working together for my good, I have to love God, not just with words, not just with you know, my heart and emotions and stuff, but actually live my life in obedience to Jesus? That is what the word is saying here. And you can say, well, I got no hope then. I have no hope because I've tried. And that's where the gospel comes in. Because this is the standard for us. And yet there's only one who has fulfilled that standard. Jesus lived that perfect life. And then he gave up his life to ransom yours and my pitiful lives. That in the death of Jesus, we get to trade all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness for his goodness. It gets credited to us. That is the amazing good news of the gospel. And so let's, let's go back and read it, Romans 8.28 again. We'll see that the gospel is embedded in this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So do you see the gospel in here, the good news? It's in the verb tense. Those are all in the past tense. They are things that were done. Who did them? God did them. God is the worker. He's not just the worker in 828 where he's working all things together for your good. He's the worker in each of those verbs in there. And the work is already done on our behalf. So called, foreknew, predestined, conformed, firstborn, predestined again, called again, justified, glorified, all past tense, all done by God, not us, on behalf of us. That's the gospel. God does the work for us, on behalf of us. And graciously offers us eternal life based on his righteousness, not our own. So if you are born again in Christ, then you can rest assured that these verses in Romans apply to your life. They are about you. Because you are called according to his purpose. Now, our enemy means evil against us, not just our earthly enemies, but our, our great arch enemy. Satan himself wants to destroy our lives. He wants to destroy our families. He wants to destroy our spiritual health. He wants to destroy our church, and he is actively trying to destroy all of those things. But if we are in Christ, then even the worst plans and schemes and trickiness of Satan is turned by our lovingly Heavenly Father into good for us. All things, says Romans 8.28. All things. Even that thing that you do not want to tell anybody about. All things. Not just some things, not just the least nasty things, not just the things that 
happened because of somebody's misguided but good intentions. Even the things that were planned and executed by our arch enemy and are used by God for our good. And I wonder if you believe that this morning. Because that's a big thing to believe. It's really hard to believe that. But God calls us to believe it. So let's go back to Genesis. Finish it up. Verse 23. Verse 22. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So what a joy it must have been for Joseph. And here we are on Father's Day talking about that He gets to see his grandkids and his great-grandkids born, raised. Not only has he saved the lives of millions of strangers, but he gets to look at the, the growing sea of a family in front of him and say, God used me to save the lives of these precious little ones whom I love so much. Just like his dad, he knows he's about to die. He gives some final instructions to his sons. He says this, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The end. That's how Genesis ends. Joseph died, embalmed him, put his body in a coffin in Egypt. The hero of the last quarter of the book of Genesis just dies, has some spices, and gets put in a box. Happens to the best of us, happens to the worst of us, happens to all of us. But Joseph, in his final words, he expressed his faith in the promises of God, just like like his dad did. He's saying, I know that God is going to bring this family into the land that he has promised. And so when that happens, I want you to bring my bones, as weird as that sounds to us, bring my bones with you to the promised land. He believes God will do this. 400 years later, God would use Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. When they left, do you know what they took with them? The bones of Joseph. So, with 400 years in between, God uses one man to bring his chosen people into Egypt to save them. And 400 years later, he uses another man to bring his chosen people out of Egypt to save them. And that second man makes sure that he brings the bones of the first man with him. Because this is all God's story. And of course it's going to come together that way. Now, as we worked through the last part of Genesis, we saw a few times how Jacob and Joseph, but mostly Jacob, was very... Um, careful to refer to God as his shepherd. 
We saw how shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. They didn't want anything to do with them. They just they looked at them as like they were the dirty ones, right? And yet Jacob says, I'm a shepherd. My boys are shepherds. Our God is a shepherd over us as sheep. 400 years later, when God picks Moses, what's Moses doing at the time? He's tending the flock. He's a shepherd. He comes back. He gathers the sheep of Israel. He leads them out as a shepherd. God, the good shepherd, is over this whole story, making it all work out exactly as he's planned. Even in all the evil, the good shepherd is at work. Jesus himself refers to himself as the good shepherd. And as I think about Joseph and the way that he lived, um, not only as a sheep under his shepherd, but as a shepherd of other sheep, I think about Psalm 23. And that's written hundreds of years after Joseph. But man, I think Joseph could claim these words as his own. So, what I'd like to do is something we don't normally do. I'd like us to, to read together Psalm 23. I'm going to put it on the screen. We're just going to read it out loud, kind of a, a slow way. If you grew up in a church where there's lots of uh, reading in the back and forth and all that, you, you'll be good at this. If this is new to you, it might feel a little weird, but uh, I promise you'll make it through. So Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. These are not the words of Joseph, but they very well could have been based on his life. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Joseph, excuse me, Joseph didn't get to dwell in the house of the Lord. He died, body turned to bones, just bones. He was carried back, stuck in that cave with his ancestors. The psalmist who wrote this, didn't get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever on this earth, in this life. You and I don't get to do that in this life. He's looking forward to the next. He's looking to the true promised land where the good shepherd will one day bring his people out of slavery and bondage in this world, bring us to the true promised land where we will get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So as I look back over Genesis, my prayer for you is this, that you will be able to have the faith to look forward to that that promised land that is coming. We started with that Garden of Eden. Things went downhill fast. 
But God will restore that one day. And those whom he has claimed as his own, he will bring into a new garden where there will be a new tree of life. And we're told that God himself will dwell with his people. That is the hope that Joseph died with. If you are in Christ, that is the hope that you are guaranteed to realize in the next life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for these people, uh, your precious sheep. Thank you for the way that you, the good shepherd, love us, care for us, shepherd us. That even in the times when our enemy has done evil against us, you are working through that for our good. Lord, would you help us to trust you? Would you, would you help us to reflect on the hardships in our lives through the lens of Joseph, through the lens of Romans 8? Help us to trust that you are really the sovereign and good God. and Your sovereign and good plan is at work. It is coming about just as you want it to, and that someday we will get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name, amen.